You are listening to the Extreme Metal Podcast Necropolis, which is brought to you by Jason from Goatcraft and Shelly from HateMeditations.com and Metal Legion Magazine. Welcome to Necropolis. This is Jason, also known as Lone Goat from Goatcraft. Co-host Shelly is busy this weekend. I believe he's at a, a metal festival, so uh, it's unfortunate he can't join us today, but I do have a wonderful episode for you all. Um, we will be doing another Bruckner episode, and I am pronouncing it properly this time, um, reining in how anglophonic I am and actually pronouncing it the way it should be pronounced is Bruckner not Bruckner. So uh, now that that's out of the way, I do have two phenomenal guests. Uh, we do have Sebastian Sebastian Ledokar returning today, who is uh, on the first episode of Bruckner that we did. He's a well-established Bruckner expert, uh, composer, teacher. Um, he's one of the few guys who has completed uh, Bruckner's ninth. Um, and one thing that's very remarkable about this guy is he never shies away from correcting people in the Anton Bruckner group on Facebook. He's usually the first one to chime in and tell someone when they're wrong. So I really appreciate that, having uh, access to expert opinions on Bruckner. And uh, one of the great things of just being in contact with him is that he actually uh, recommended uh, William Walton uh, the British composer, the English composer. And uh, I've always kind of shied away from English composers. I'm more into the Germans and Russians and all that. And I kind of just, you know, cast the English to the wind because everyone in America, like Amer Americans are very Anglo files. Like uh, there's this great appreciation for uh, the Queen of England and Anglo culture and all that. And, you know, I, I cannot sit through a Dalton Abbey abby episode um so it's, i've always kind of cast english composers to the wind but william walton's phenomenal i really truly enjoyed his first and second symphony so uh uh sebastian thank you for coming back and thank you for recommending some phenomenal music i'm very glad to have this discussion about Bruckner with both of you very yes. happy Yes, sir. And great to have you back. Um, so our other guest today, his first time on this podcast, is a very, very uh, phenomenal individual. He is an astonishing musicologist. He was a professor of physics for 35 years. He is also the author of the Bruckner Red Book, which I am holding in my hand right now. And he's the vice president of the Anton Bruckner Society of America. And uh, some of his Bruckner editions are held in very high esteem, especially his second uh symphony edition so we do have uh, will kerrigan on the program today um very very uh insightful insightful guy um like i i i am scared about how knowledgeable this man is about bruckner but i'm also thrilled to learn more about one of my favorite composers so i, I do want to thank will kerrigan for coming on the podcast today you're most welcome i'm glad to be here Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So you actually spend uh, quite a time in Vienna studying uh, the, the manuscripts of Anton Bruckner. Is that correct? Yes, it is. So with all that insight that you gained from uh, the archives in Vienna um, over the years, you, you finally put together uh, your, your Anton Bruckner Red Book, which goes through all the different versions of the symphonies of Bruckner. Everyone knows that the symphonies were revised a number of times, especially the third and fourth symphony. Um, so, 
So with that, um, the way this book is put together is very wonderful that, you know, number one, it has a, you know, you talking about the different versions. So you have the written explanations of the versions and the different editions that have been out throughout the years. You, you also have the scores, but in addition to that, for people who want to hear it, um, to hear the differences, there are QR codes that you can scan with your phone and it'll take you to the Red Book website and you're able to hear the differences. So if you can't read the scores or you just rather listen to the differences, um, there are QR codes. So um, can you tell me a little bit about how you approached um, wanting to compile like a, a great reference for the uh, the Bruckner Red Book here? Um, you, was it really just to have a... Uh, everything empirically down, like all the differences empirically down in one book without any bias? Well, I certainly didn't want there to be any bias. And the reason a good as reason as any is that uh, uh, until you know what the versions are like, you really don't have the right to have a bias. And it, uh, and besides the bias always ends up rejecting something. And it's fairly unwise to reject things here. Uh, but first I need to say that the Red Book is not a, is not a collection of all the differences. That would be a red library. Uh, the, uh, but it's, it's, it's a collection of enough differences so that the listener, any listener can tell which version that listener is listening to. And it's, uh, to be able to identify them as quickly as possible before the QR code idea got into the, uh, the mix, I thought I needed to try to do this at, at the very beginning, if possible. Well, it wasn't always possible to do it. And the lady who was editing the book, designing it, that, that is editing in the, in the sense of, of what does a book look like and how is it presented? Uh, she had the idea. She's not a musician. She had the idea of the QR codes. And the result of the QR codes is that there are over 400 audio texts associated with that, or 400 audio files, some of which last two or four minutes. And uh, they're, they're all accessible through the website. In fact, you don't need to go through the QR code. You can just go directly to the website. But you won't understand what you're doing unless you have a copy of the Red Book. Uh, and so, uh, uh, and again, I presented completely without bias. But the main reason that one does this is that one does not yet know why Bruckner made the changes. And in fact, uh, why he made the changes is never primary. It always comes out of wisdom and conjecture and just guessing why he made the changes. But after being immersed in this uh, effort for many years now, I've come to the conclusion that Bruckner, when he starts a new symphony, he writes down what he wants to hear. He writes it down and it's always big. It's always very big. And it also, at this point, it has the greatest structural integrity that he will ever have with the piece. It will be in the first version. But for two reasons, he will change things. One of the reasons is he'll improve it. And uh, if, you, if you need an example of that, I think maybe the best one, or a good one anyway, is the... Uh, Recapitulation in the first movement of the Eighth Symphony, uh, where the scoring of 1890, which is really undertaken earlier than that, but uh, uh, that scoring is much richer and much more profound than the scoring of 1887. It's the same length, all the same music is there, but everything is 
greatly enhanced and made much more impressive. And yet, when you listen to the 1887 version and you hear that pace, you like it. You do, you do like it, but that shows it. That's one reason he changed things. The other reason he changed things is this. In writing these symphonies, he's revealing himself. And he's doing it out of a profound sense of self-confidence, of, of the ability to write down what he was thinking. He had in complete faith in what he wanted to say. But what he did not have faith in is the ability of the public to stand it, to understand it, to deal with it at all. And we have that problem even today, but in 1870s and 1880s Vienna, it was much worse. I mean, remember these people were, 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 were used to thinking of Mendelssohn and Schumann as being modern. And half of them hated Wagner. And uh, they had all these attitudes that we don't have today. And uh, we they also the orchestras cannot have been as good as they are now. Today, uh, these orchestras can play the Rite of Spring as a repertory piece. That means they can play anything Bruckner wrote. And uh, in those days, it was a struggle. It, for example, in 1876, he steps up to the podium of the Vienna Philharmonic. And he plays, he conducts the Second Symphony for the second time. It's a sort of a second premiere of the Second Symphony. But he started by saying, gentlemen, and of course they were all men in those days, gentlemen, we're going to stay here until we learn this piece. I found somebody who's willing to pay for the rehearsals. Now think of that. Today, a concert like that is put together with four rehearsals maximum. Any, any, any orchestra, uh, professional orchestra will put it together in four rehearsals. Then God knows how many times they had to rehearse it. And yet the orchestra people were in, on record as really liking the piece. They enjoyed playing it. So why did we have a debacle in the next year with the third? God only knows. Uh, some people think he was engineered, that the, that the anti-Wagner people made sure that it was a problem. I don't know. I, uh, I talked to Thomas Röder, who was the editor, the sort of guru editor of the Third Symphony, and a person whom I know pretty well and like a lot and respect. I said, Tom, what, what did they play in 1877, December 16th? He said, I don't know. And the reason he doesn't know is there are all these notations in the score, in the parts, and in, in, in pencil, in blue pencil, in red pencil, in green, whatever, all change this, change that, change the other thing. It must have been total chaos. And uh, so we look at that and we say, well, we are lucky here that we have what we don't have with so many other composers. For example, Johannes Brahms, we don't have it. What we have is a real record of the, of the total composition of the piece, not only the composition in the case of the eighth and ninth anyway, we have all the sketches for those, but uh, with the others, these different versions. And they teach us so much, especially if we simply humbly watch and listen. Very cool, very cool. Um, so you, you mentioned a lot of things right there. And one of the things that you had brought up um, was the differences between the coda, the first movement of the Eighth Symphony, um, which you said was the 1887, but I've seen it on YouTube posted as the 1888 version. And your exact words in describing that to me is like, Promethean, um, the resolution, rather than the, the version that we're all familiar with, where it's terrifying. Um, it's, <laughs> so, um, so how would you compare, just as the, uh, the coda of the first movement of the Eighth Symphony, um, 
how would you just compare the two and like how is that represented in the red book aha uh-huh. well first the red book lays out what happened and it uh, what happened is at a rather late date uh maybe as late as 1890 um de- detached the coda so that what we have in 1890 we don't really have a coda we just have the transition into the coda and for those who don't know the 1887 version, they think it's the coda. But it, if 1887 shows that everything comes to a stop, and this huge ending. Well, uh, at a conference years and years ago, and I wish I knew where, uh, when this happened, but it was, I think, a Berkner Journal Readers Conference of fairly 2000. 2000s, I think so, and I, I should look it up. Anyway, there was a whole conference, and the main theme about it was the Promethean character of the Eighth Symphony. That is to say, the Eighth Symphony is about a human struggle to actualize what the gifts were that were given to that human and how the human deals with the problems that are there. And that's what the symphony is about. Uh, and when people say it's apocalyptic, if you if you uh, look up the Greek word apocalypsis, you find that it means revelation, unveiling. And uh, in order to do that, you see, you have to have Prometheus alive through the whole piece. And if he dies at the end of the first movement, you don't know, how are you going to resurrect him? Uh, whereas the coda of 1887, this incredible coda, uh, I mean, orchestrated in the most virtuosic manner, um, it's Prometheus saying, you may bind me to the rock. You may have an eagle plucking out my liver every day and grows back at night and the eagle goes back the next day and plucks out my liver again. You can do that, but I defy you and I will win. That's what that coda says to me. Uh, and that's why I love those early versions. Yeah, uh, Sebastian, you have an esoteric take on the apocalyptic symphony, don't you? Yes, the first thing I can say about the eight is that I prefer the second version. And I'm not as enthusiastic as William about the, the coda of the first movement of the 
1887 version because I think that this huge coda uh, in a certain way um, is uh, uh, redundant with the ending of the finale of the symphony. And when uh, William speaks about the resurrection of Prometheus, uh, my it's, it's purely speculative, purely subjective, but I think, and not only in the Eighth Symphony, that in Bruckner's music, there is a lot of uh, Christian esoteric symbols because he was very Catholic. He had a strong faith. And, uh, you know, we are going to, take, to talk about the Tempi uh, of Bruckner's symphonies and uh, about the, the, the finale of the eight, and especially in, in, the, in this finale, um, I already talked about that uh, on, on Messenger uh, with you, the, the, um, the recapitulation, the last group, the, the third group, the, the, the C team, um, is slower as in the exposition. And <laughs> in, the, in the exposition, it's, it's a, a march-like, uh, like the first thing, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a, a tempo going forward. And in the recapitulation, Bruckner's wants the, 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 the tempo of the previous uh, music, it is the B2, the episode is the flute, the tubans and the horn, to, to keep this uh, noch langsamer, even slower. And when you keep this tempo, when the, the C team comes back, uh, the return it's it's like it sounds like a funeral march and so the build-up uh, you have to um, to accelerate progressively to the the return in augmentation of the the main theme of the first movement and then we have a, a complete decrescendo and uh, for me th this 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 moment is very important it's it's like uh, uh, entombment or the, the the vision of death of of the 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 the, the all human suffering and uh, this long decrescendo uh, until you have the the last beating of the tim the timpani boom boom yeah. um, it make it make me um, think about the, the last heartbeat before dying you know and when the, this last uh, beat of the heart are also the beginning of the coda. And for me, the, the coda is clearly um, the, 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 the gate, the, 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 the pathway to resurrection. resurrection. This, this is how I, I, I feel this music. You have the, the long progression and the, the, the combination of the four themes in, in C major at the end. Uh, I, I loved what uh, the Canadian conductor said about that uh, uh, he said that uh, the C major moment which is the, the crowning of the whole symphony, the fulfillment of the whole symphony is like all the bells of the world ringing at the same time it's, it, for me it's <laughs> like a vision of the whole universe uh, ringing or I don't know the, 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 the angels of, the, of God playing trumpets and, and trombones and, and horns all together. And uh, that, that's, that's a vision of uh, elevation, of resurrection. That, that, that's for me 
who, who I perceive this music. You have this this funeral march, this vision of dead, of death, of 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 the global suffering of human uh, humankind, and then uh, this entombment, this this completely uh, the music completely flat out, and then we have this this last heartbeat, and from the 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 very last end of the the, the last uh, how to say that um, the, the last glimpse of life uh, we begin to to enter the, the the mystery of the the resurrection and you have the this this beginning of the coda with the papam of the timpani which is a which is a, a very moving very impressive moment yeah, it's one of my uh, favorite things I've ever written. I had posted about that a couple of days ago, I believe. Um, that coda in the last in the finale um, is just magnificent. Um, so we we know Brook, Brookner was. Uh, Can I break in here for just a minute? Yes, sir. Hi, I'm back. Awesome, awesome. Uh, fine. So you're going to? Uh, I'll edit I'll out. Please, sir. I'll I'll yeah. edit out the silence and all that. Oh, you, you do do what you need to do. I, I, I wanted to point out in the Red Book that uh, uh, there are two examples on page uh, 173 that back up what uh, uh, Sebastian was, was saying, which is in, in the case of leading into the third theme group where, the, where eventually after a, of a crescendo and accelerando, the theme from the first movement recurs. Anyway, at that point, uh, the temple indication written in the later manuscript is feel langsamer, which means much more slowly. And remember, we're starting here with the speed of the B theme, which is already slower than the speed of the A theme. So that he really wants you to begin the third theme, D, 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 like his funeral march. Sebastian is quite right about that. And uh, then the other example, that's example 8.11 on page 173. And at the bottom of the page, example 8.12 has the four themes in the peroration of the coda laid out so you can see exactly how each movement is brought back. It's quite interesting. Uh, in, in real life, the ones you hear are the first movement in the bass and the scherzo in the high trumpets. But all four are actually there and you can see that they're on the page and see how it works. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I mean, I, when Sebastian talks about angels ringing bells and playing trumpets he's completely right it is the most triumphant thing you can imagine the the final the, the codas of the fifth and the eighth are the more the more glorious coda he ever wrote but the the final of the fifth is completely different it, it has a more uh, baroque style i would say when when the the ending of the eight is is very extremely mystical. Yes, I, uh, I think you're, I think you're right. I think in, in the in the fifth he was he was essentially writing a dissertation. He's saying I'm a village son of a village schoolmaster, and this is what I can do. And the uh, so when he brings the themes back, they're all there. There are a number of themes there, not just the chorale, not just the theme from the first movement fugue. Our last one was fugue, but the, uh, they're all there. But they're brought back now, not always together. I mean, the, the theme, bum, dum, da, dum, bum, that comes back first, then the chorale joins it, and the dum, 
his rhythm is still there, although the melodic element is modified to fit the chorale. But then when that's done, the themes from the first movement come back. And uh, it's uh, so he's doing something quite different with those two codas. And the, in the fifth, he is, I think, exulting in the power and strength that he inherited from Simon Sexter and which he had been developing with the second, third, and fourth symphonies. He's exulting in the in the abilities that he has at this point. In the eighth, yes, there is he's a, telling a, a very, very high excitement at the end of the the fifth. That's that's, that's yeah. comp complete excitement and pure joy and I've, I've, explosion yeah, of joy. Yeah. Uh, uh, maybe well, you will find what I will say just right here uh, a, a little bit odd, but. I presume that you know the cartoon, the Disney cartoon, Alice in Wonderworld. And the end of the cartoon, the Disney cartoon, it reminds me exactly the same construction uh, as the, the, the finale of the fifth, where all the forces are uh, uniting together. And you have this, this type of uh, craziness, I would say, or extremely nervous uh, energy in the end, at the end of the the, the the cartoon just before Alice wake up. I don't know if you remind mm -hmm. this passage, uh, but you have all, all, the, the all, the, all the characters of the of the the cartoon. They 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 all reappear at the end of the cartoon just before she she wakes up. You know, I I may remember that. I'm course I know the book, but I I I may remember that. I think I do. This is a a long time ago. Yeah, they all were, they all come there together. Well, you know, in the fifth, they come there one after each other or two at a time. Whereas yes, in yes. the eighth, they're all four. Yeah, it's a different kind of a thing. And in the eighth, I think it is mystical. You see, the, the the connection with Prometheus was not made by me. It was it was the theme of that meeting. That was the point. There was paper after paper about it. And I'd like to. I should make uh, an inquiry of maybe uh, Ken Ward will know. Although I think it was before Ken's time, Maybe back when Peter Palmer was the, the head of the group, and uh, everybody there but me had come with a paper about Prometheus. So when when oh, uh, you had, when you had mentioned that uh, the 1887 version of the Bruckner's Eighth, uh, that first movement's coda, is very Promethean, it immediately reminded me of the, the composer Hugo Wolf who was into exactly that type of subject material. Um, he has like a Prometheus piece and things of that nature, which really brings me to uh, another topic I would like to talk about of uh, other composers who are influenced by Bruckner. Um, the other day in the Bruckner group, there was someone saying that Richard Strauss was influenced by Bruckner, which I don't see really any correlation there, like no substantial correlation other than perhaps in the Alpine Symphony, um, the, the, the coda wrapping things up, but that's the structure of that's completely different than Bruckner, different types of, it's very empirical, like the Alpine Symphony is Strauss going up a mountain and, you know, experiencing a storm, I believe, and having to come back down and not knowing, you know, if the sun will rise again, essentially. Um, but uh, um, so it's very personal. It's very personal. Whereas Bruckner's music doesn't really seem that personal. It's like Sebastian said on the, the other episode is very abstract. Like he's going for like almost higher platonic forms, essentially, with some of his music. So um, going back to uh, 
the topic um before this chat you guys had mentioned that sibelius was definitely influenced by bruckner um you know there's hugo wolf and of course uh not many people know about this composer ricard vetz um who wrote he was trying to be the continuation of bruckner but I, I tried listening to a couple of his symphonies and it did not have the same type of gravitas to it that Bruckner's had. It has a lot of the same kind of forms, but this it almost seems like an imitation to me personally, not to poop on the composer, but uh, when I hear Bruckner, it's much more coherent. Um, so which composers would you guys say and why that are influenced by Bruckner? I would say the, the first name that comes to my mind is Sibelius, but I always have uh, perceived Sibelius music, Sibelius symphonies, like uh, um, a sort of adolescent Bruckner. That's, that's the way I would hmm. describe uh, the, how I, I, I experience Sibelius music. But um, otherwise, Maybe Hindemith also was uh, quite influenced, um, but uh, I, I think that many composers uh, after uh, after Bruckner were mainly influenced by Wagner and uh, Mahler, mostly uh, Schoenberg, Webern, and so on, uh, or the, the second Vienna school. And unfortunately, maybe Bruckner. 20, 30 years after his death, uh, sort of disappear from the musical landscape. He was still performed, but you, you know, this, this altered first publication, especially the, for the, the, the fifth or the ninth symphony, which were absolutely not authentic, but uh, it took time before uh, Bruckner had a sort of revival. So the main, the main name that that comes through to my mind is Sibelius, I would say. That's interesting because I, I the Sibelius Second Symphony, the coda to the finale, um, very, very powerful where he ties it into a nice bow like Bruckner would do. Um, and Bruckner might go off and, you know, the coda is like, it's a recap, he recaptured, you know, the things that have come before, but it's morphed into something else where it's very, in Bruckner's case, it's very triumphant. And uh, Sibelius. The ending of the third also is quite is quite Brucknerian, and some passages also the the, the finale of the fifth, the the, the 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 central section of the the first movement of the fifth uh, also is quite Brucknerian to my ears. The way he used uh, the brass, the the, the build-up intention. It's, it's quite Bruckner. That's not exactly uh, how Bruckner composed. Of course, it's it's the style. It's uh, you know Sibelius as a more organic style, like uh, like a plant. When when Bruckner is very geometric, very architectural, but you, you can feel the, the same type of uh, long progression, long crescendo, and and huge. Uh, Climax in the center of the, of a movement with with the brass uh, playing very loud and very bright, and also very very powerful uh, uh, coda uh, like the the, the the ending of Sibelius' uh, third symphony, which is which is quite impressive also. 
what about Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony, the finale's coda? Um, I believe you had. Uh-huh. Go ahead, William. Well, yeah. Uh, let, me, let me say more about Sibelius first before we do that, and maybe seconding what uh, uh, Sebastian has said. Uh, the uh, the ending of the Fifth Symphony uh, is also quite Wagnerian in, in the in the concentration and the, uh, the the pacing of the final measures, the final movement uh, that he does that. And the, the third, which is one of my favorites, uh, has an incredible momentum to it. Whereas the momentum of the ending of the fifth and the ending of the second is sort of generated on the spot, but in the in the third it comes from the whole movement, and it uh, even though it's not as big a piece, but it's big enough. The, the difficulty in finding a successor to Bruckner is really who, whom do we have after the year 1900 writing symphonies that are over an hour long, and there's only one person who's doing that at that time, and that's Gustav Mahler. And the more you look at Mahler, uh, who influenced him, the more you were led to Beethoven. You really are. I mean, Mahler uses the five-part uh, song form just the way Bruckner did. Bruckner got it from the Ninth Symphony and from the A minor string quartet, which is the only places Beethoven used it. But he used it there, uh, both very important movements. Well, uh, Mahler uses that form too. He uses it in the Third Symphony for the finale. He uses the fourth symphony for the slow movement. He uses it for the slow movement of the sixth symphony and other places. Uh, did he get it from Bruckner? I don't believe it. I don't think he inherited anything from Bruckner except some aspects of the overall sound. He got it straight from Beethoven, just the way Bruckner did. And uh, after that, whom do you find using it? I don't know. That's the symphonies I believe are pretty darn good. And I think the way you best approach them, and I have not done this, is to get a score and study them and really find out what's there and why he does it. But I'll bet you a dollar that by the time you get done with it, you're going to get at least as much influence from Schumann as you do from Bruckner. Uh, because Schumann writes the same scale, same scale symphonies. Uh, and Bruckner didn't. And that's that, the next time you find a composer who writes big pieces like that is, is Shostakovich, as you say. And we know Shostakovich felt it because he said so. And uh, you, you, you might have a difficulty proving it from the beginning, from just from the music. But Shostakovich said he felt the experience. He felt the influence. And that means a lot. And for, for my, my mind, Shostakovich is the 20th century composer of everyone. Not necessarily in quality, most of the time in quality, but mainly in ambition. And uh, he had the most horrible things to fight against. And he had lots of different ways of doing it. Uh, when you get done with it, you listen to the 15th Symphony, you listen to the Viola Sonata, and you begin to say, he says, you know, was it worth it? Because at that point, in the 1970s, people weren't listening to him anymore. And yet he was still writing good music. I, I, I uh, well, t- to me, once again, the way to look at this thing is not to follow these ideas too far, but just to scroll down a list of the music and see what you can hear. Excellent, excellent. So um, I believe it was a discussion between myself and Sebastian where he had mentioned yes. the, the finale to um, the Fifth Symphony by Shostakovich being very Bruckerian. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
and also the ending well, of we, the seventh symphony, the Leningrad symphony, is also very broken. The seventh, really, I think, so very, yeah. very big, long, long coda of the finale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think the seventh is a better parallel than the fifth. In the fifth, you see, we really don't know what Chastain was meant there. Um, he could have meant something triumphant. I know when I heard this piece of the first time, it had just been written, and uh, people got it out of out of uh, the, the Fifth Symphony and the Seventh Symphony, they actually sneaked it out of Russia so it could be played here. And uh, Tuscanini and Stokowski were struggling over that. And I remember that because I'm old enough to remember it. But the Fifth Symphony, along comes Solomon Volkov, and he tells you the Chastika, which meant that people were being beaten into cheering for the crowd, just as what happened in the coronation scene in Boris Godunov. And the trouble is the coronation scene in Boris Godunov sounds glorious to everybody until you realize that what Pushkin is trying to tell you is that the enthusiasm is all fake. Mm -hmm. I don't know, you know. I, uh, the real Boris is, is not really like Pushkin. And, but, but we only can deal here with the artistic manifestations of it. Uh, so I, I don't know what the ending of the Fifth Symphony means. I, I, I mean, I know what there are two things that it might mean. But I do know what the end of the seventh symphony means, and it's very Bruckneri. Interesting, interesting. Um, I'll have to re-listen to the seventh. I'm a big Shostakovich guy, and I actually agree quite a bit that it may not be the the best quality, but there's a lot of profundity there. And I believe I saw the eighth in uh, Helsinki a couple of weeks ago by the Helsinki Philharmonic, and I had two metal musicians to my right and left. Um, really well-regarded metal musicians. One was Marco from B. May I, and uh, maybe, maybe we just uh, just to, to tell a really funny anecdote about the uh, the Shostakovich the Seventh. One time I went to Tanglewood to hear somebody I don't remember whom conduct the Seventh, and uh, in the uh, development section, you know where they um. In one place, that theme is doubled, so that one group says and another one says and the first one goes the second one goes well, you think to yourself, you know, that could be omitted. Well, anyway, at that point, the bassoon that paid the entrant, that paid the answers there, got lost, and he didn't play any of his notes. So they just went dee 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 dee. One, two, three, four. Dee 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 dee. It just did that. And they just, and at the end of that particular episode, everybody got back on track again. This was a concert, not a, not a rehearsal. Well, about a year later, my wife went into a supermarket and I sat out in the car and turned the radio on, and there was that performance. And you know what they did? They cut out that whole variation. They just cut it all out. You need it. You need it. You need it. Everybody who criticizes that think the timing is exquisite in the original version. It really is. And uh, what a way to have it proven to you. But it, it uh, uh, so, uh, uh, and when Folkhoff says, the Chastagoe says, that's not the German army. What that is, is the, uh, he says it was written before the German army happened. What that was is the strength of the bureaucracy of the Soviets and how they oppressed everybody and how they mm -hmm. all of the beautiful sort of Russian 
values that are exemplified by the first and second themes. First theme being obviously masculine, second theme obviously feminine, no question about it. And they, it's like these are the Russian people that keep the country going. And then they have to encounter that. And that's what Folkov says, and, and I believe in. I really do. It makes it makes sense in, ti- in timing, and it makes sense in the kind of person Shostakovich was. We could probably and, do an uh, episode on Shostakovich later if you guys would like. Oh, um, but yeah, the the topic yeah. today is Bruckner. Um, so um, <laughs> maybe maybe okay. a last word because maybe a last word. You because, can cut that um, out. Um, <laughs> I think that um, Mahler as well as Shostakovich maybe. He narrated uh, something from Bruckner, which is very important. And you, you talked about the Shostakovich's uh, Eighth Symphony. The first movement is also very Brucknerian because of this sense of long scale, large space, yes. lo- long developed movement. And I think, as I told you uh, during the, the first podcast, podcast, Bruckner was a pioneer. In, uh, at writing long, long, large-scale symphonies, and I, I'm sure that without this this kind of uh, how to say that concept, musical concept, Mahler w- wouldn't have been exactly the same, and Shostakovich uh, either. Yeah. So Bruckner was. Could be- with uh, the massive symphonies, the very long-winded form, you know, long durations, very large expanses, um, and then you know others came afterwards. So I do have a question, um, and it's a very important question about Bruckner. Um, how much was Bruckner influenced by Wagner? Um, I, I was reading an article today that uh, um, when it came to uh, Bruckner's Third Symphony, which is dedicated to Wagner, um, it was Bruckner and Wagner went out for some beers. I would be really interested to see exactly which beers they drank. But uh, um, um, so they ended up getting drunk and uh, Bruckner showed uh, Wagner a couple of his symphonies. I believe it was Second Symphony and Third Symphony. And uh, Wagner wanted the Third Symphony to be dedicated to you know Wagner. And uh, so, you know, obviously there's a lot of touch points with Wagner in the Third Symphony and in the Seventh Symphony, the Adagio, the, the massive slow movement. Um, it sounds very Wagnerian, um, it, but it starts out very Wagnerian, but then it turns very Bruckner, um, where, you know, Bruckner comes off his themes, he develops them, and by the end of it, it all coalesces and it's very multi-layered of the themes. Um, so uh, just an honest question, it's like how much was Bruckner actually influenced by Wagner? Um, I'll start with uh, Mr. Will Kerrigan here. Okay, uh, the, uh, the the Wagner episode, uh, the, the visit, um, as I remember it it, it, it went this way that he, he met him uh, I think Von Fried had just been finished, maybe, met him there, uh, and um, uh, showed him the complete Second Symphony, because it had already been played twice at that point, and um, the uh, the third, which is work in progress. And the third had this trumpet theme at the beginning, and, and Wagner liked that. He may have seen there was a little bit, just a tiny little bit, maybe a little more than a little bit, 
a resemblance to the opening uh, thoughts for the overture in The Flying Dutchman. You may have seen that. Maybe Berkner meant it. The part that means something to me is da 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 that that's in both of them. And so, so we chose that. Well, the next thing we see in the, in the Third Symphony uh, is the Bayreuth Manuscript and its twin in Vienna, 6033. And that has two citations or reminiscences, and I think most of us say reminiscences now, of Wagner themes. It has Tristan in it and it has the sleep motives from Die Valkyrie. That's in the first movement. In the second movement, the sleep motive from Die Valkyrie also occurs there. And in the last movement, the, the Tristan theme appears in the second theme group. This is in 1873. Now, when were they put there? That's a really good question. I'm, I don't know the answer. When were they put there? Were they put there before the meeting? And when Wagner saw them, he said, oh, I got to take that one. Or were they not there at the second at that meeting? And were they put in later? I think they were probably put in later. And the way you could find that out is by studying a manuscript that I've never worked with, which is at 6013 in the National Library, which is the fragmentary working manuscript of the first version of the Third Symphony. Fortunately, we don't have to rely on this for the final text because the one, the, the dedication copy that he sent to Bayreuth, we use that. And no luck, you know, and I, I'll film it, all that sort of thing. But uh, the 6013 might have in it evidence that shows when these things were, were added. Uh, that to me, that this is really very important, and I particularly think the one, the addition in the uh, last movement, sounds like it wasn't an addition; it was put in to start with. It's it, it it goes so smoothly and so cleverly. It's really nice. Of course, these are all gone by 1876 when he made the first draft of 19475. They were all gone by then. I I think I think there's a very slight possibility that he deleted the Tristan before he deleted the Valkyrie. I, I, I got to think a little more about that. But it's, uh, uh, I would say this, as far as answering your question, what influence did he have for Wagner? The sound, the overall feeling, the, the dedication to higher things. I mean, Wagner's operas are all at a very high moral level. And um, mysterious, and but there that the form not in the least bit uh, he got it all from beethoven he just did and uh the uh wagner wrote did write one symphony and started a second one it's a good piece it's based on beethoven seven it's so obviously based on beethoven seven that when you hear it you practically can tell what the next measure is but it's a very very nice piece and he could have been a good symphonist but uh uh, I doubt that Bruckner knew that piece. And uh, Bruckner got from Wagner the general attitude, the mystery, the richness, the, the color, the uh, kind of uh, reference to a, an earlier, purer time. I, I don't know, or maybe a purer time that had its impurities. Uh, and it, uh, that uh, Bruckner is, fight, is fighting impurities everywhere in the Eighth Symphony. And he, he wins at the end, of course. Uh, that I think he got, but not anything structural, anything of that kind of uh, musical language. It's not yeah. there at all. Wagner never wrote in a sonata form. I mean, other than the symphony with hence well, to yeah. Beethoven. But, uh, 
the operas themselves, like there's no, oh, no. sonata form. Um, but uh, yeah, I tell you what, there's there's one thing, Jason. There's one thing in the um, in the part five of the eighth symphony adagio, which is given a lot of uh, discussion in the Red Book. Um, instead of coming to one big climax, it comes to a number of different climaxes, each one surpassing the one before it. And that's a Wagner technique. And he uses, a, he uses that there. And I'm not the first person to say that, but they're called gradated climaxes. And, and again, in the Red Book, there's some detail about that. But uh, in all the other adagios, there's one climax. Maybe a little more complicated than the Fifth Symphony, but there's one climax where everything just goes crazy, and it's usually in a remote key. And that I mean, the meaning behind that is also really important. For example, in the Seventh, you say, well, is that a memorial to Wagner? Well, at the end, it is, sure. Whether it was at the beginning or not, I'm much more skeptical. Uh, because where do you get that 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 climax from? That incredible climax where he eventually put us symbols in. Where do you get that from? Well, he always did that. He always did that, and it was in a funny place in the Sixth Symphony. The form is different, but it's there too. And and uh, I think you need to answer that question before you take the whole symphony, a whole movement, and give it over to Wagner. Yeah, like I, was, I don't know. Yeah, the adagio of the seventh um the first time i heard it um with being uh not too familiar with bruckner back then um i thought it was straight taken from wagner but the the older i got the the more refined my tastes were in classical music i realized like the theme the first theme may be very wagnerian um sounding the atmosphere the 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 general mood that bruckner was conveying but the piece as a whole is completely Bruckner. Would you agree with that? I, I would. I, I, I will admit that, you know, that first theme right at the beginning is played by the four Wagner tuba and the contrabass tuba, the five big brass instruments. That, that's, what, that's who play the theme. No wonder it sounds Wagnerian. <laughs> it's a, they're the Wagner tuba. And uh, they, uh, but, but I, I don't, I think, in, I think as you say, uh, the structure the structure is absolutely from Beethoven. There's no doubt about it. I mean, even in detail, even in the way he handles it, the contrast between the two themes, what it's like. In, in, the, in the Beethoven, both themes are happy because it's, it's, it's the Beethoven uh, that is in the in the well, it is, they are in the ninth too. But in the quartet, it's a song of thanksgiving of a convalescent, uh, sacred song of thanksgiving of a convalescent. That's the title of the movement. Well, this is just right up Bruckner's alley. Exactly the kind of thing he would like to do. I think, uh, it, uh, uh, Sebastian, um, I've seen you argue quite a bit with people on the internet about the true influence of Wagner on Bruckner. Um, so what is your take on what we've just said? I would say that the influence of Wagner uh, on Bruckner was uh, very small. Honestly, yeah, because the, the orchestration of Bruckner is inherited from Schubert and Beethoven mainly, and of course with extended uh, brass, of course, uh, with chromatic horns and, and so on, and chromatic trumpets. But that's the, yeah. mainly the universe, the formal uh, and, and orchestral universe of the, the Viennese symphony. So it has no link 
to, to Wagner. Uh, and what we can find in, in Bruckner symphonies is uh, some mechanism, some harmonic mechanism of, of Wagner. But I, I'm, I'm not sure it's so specific to Wagner because, you know, this kind of modulations, uh, it's already started some uh, with Schubert when you come when you analyze some some modulations, some some changes of tonality with Schubert. It, it, it's uh, already uh, ambiguous, you know, and later with Schumann and Liszt and so on, it was in the air, this kind of uh, uh, development of chromaticism and ambiguity, harmonic ambiguity. So, of course, you have Tristan and Isolde, this famous prelude and the, the, the beginning of this prelude, but uh, I'm not sure that it was so decisive on Bruckner. Uh, I would say that the musical shock for Bruckner was very important to, to listen to Wagner's music, but the, the uh, William mentioned the, the use of Wagner tuben in, in Bruckner's music, but when I hear this tuben used in, in Bruckner's symphonies, it sounds very alpine to me, you know? I, I don't hear uh, a quotation of or or a sort of uh, atmosphere of a of a Wagner opera. It sounds it sounds Bruckner. It sounds uh, like the, uh, the Alpine music in Switzerland or in in Austria. So I, I don't hear Wagner. Of very 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 few, the, the influence is very small for me. I have to agree. I, 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 the, uh, the the Wagner Tuben made their made their first appearance in Bruckner symphonies in at, at the beginning of the slow movement of the of the uh, seventh. And you're right. I mean, everything is written there with uh, the, the techniques of Haydn and Mozart and uh, Haydn and Beethoven and Schubert. They really it really is. Uh, it's just that we have now formed new brass instruments, and this is where they step out of the stage. Uh, this is is not at all the way way. Longer composed, not at all. It's just Schubert with a bigger orchestra, with more yeah. possibilities. Yes. Very interesting. Very interesting. So I do have a, a couple more questions today, and of course, we'll allow organic discussion to manifest and go in whichever direction that it goes in. But uh, one of the things uh, we've all had a disdain for is the critic uh, David Hurwitz. And this morning I watched this video about the, um, he, he, he pitted against the, the Mahler cult versus the Bruckner cult. And he essentially says that, you know, Bruckner wasn't that smart, at least in public opinion, and that people are more into the idea of Bruckner more than Bruckner himself. Um, and which I totally disagree with is a huge slap in the face. I mean, I love the music that I hear and I, I think it's some of the most profound music that I've ever heard. Um, second to Beethoven and not necessarily second, like might be tied and how uh, profound it is to me on a personal level um, that the music itself, you know, speaks uh, volumes. Whereas, you know, he came up with a, a theory that the the Bruckner cult is more obsessed with 
finding the right version of the symphony is finding, you know, the idea of Bruck, Bruckner more than uh, just uh, accepting Bruckner as a composer where you do have a manifold of different versions, which your book outlines well. Um, but, you know, and I love the way that you approach it where it's, there's no bias. You just present it, you know, the information as it is. And you, know, you let people discover Bruckner and the different, you know, variations of the symphonies. Um, so I, I feel like this uh, critic, he may be good on one level where he's, you know, talking about Bruckner, he's having people who may not be too familiar with Bruckner, you know, actually delve into his music. But I think it comes from the wrong place. And uh, Sebastian, I'll start with you. Like, what are your general thoughts on the uh, critic David Hurwitz? About Bruckner, he's uh, very often a source of simplification of simplistic claims. Uh, and he's very arrogant, I would say, also. And uh, what I dislike deep, deeply about what he said about the Bruckner scholars uh, being lunatics and so on uh, is that uh, he says that uh, people like William or Benjamin Corsfett pretend to be smarter than Bruckner. Uh, that, that's absolutely not the case. As you said, there is no bias. And this is pres to, to present uh, what is at disposal and to be as objective as possible. And uh, in, in the Bruckner group, a few days ago, someone uh, put uh, wrote a message and saying that he thought that William Carrigan was doing the same kind of job as the, the brother Schalk or Fran, uh, Ferdinand Leuve. And it, this, this claim was so so in, un, uninformed, so so wrong. No, no, it's uh, absolutely not uh, the, the same the same kind of of, uh, of uh, work on Bruckner's music. Absolutely not. William is probably the most uh, trust uh, trustworthy, the, the most honest person possible uh, on earth uh, concerning Bruckner. So there is no. There is no wrongdoing on the side of William Carrigan, but I, I let him speak now. Hi, oh my. Thank you. That's very nice. You know, I didn't see that. <laughs> they said they said uh, they said that I was working like like Schalk and Lewis. I, I I would probably have made a sarcastic response. I'd say so, thank you so much. But anyway, <laughs> that's probably what I would have said. But anyway, about Hurwitz. Um, this is a, a sensitive issue because Hurwitz bought from the Bruckner Society, which is where you can get it, a copy of the Red Book. He bought it. And uh, I know he did because I know the guy does a fulfillment. You remember sending it to him. He read the preface to the book. And on the basis of the preface to the book, he panned it. He must have cost me hundreds of sales. He must have. He panned it. Who wrote the preface? Ben Corsbett. Ben Korsbad is a good friend of mine. I've known him for 30, at least maybe 40 years. We talk to each other about lots of things. He's the president of the group, thank heaven, and I'm the vice president. Uh, and uh, Ben did do an edition of the 1888 uh, fourth, which has been thought of for many years as being hopelessly corrupt. And his dissertation back when he was at the University of Pennsylvania was about the 
as he put it in those days, the authorial, that is to say the genuine uh, character of, of that edition, that it cannot be separated from, from, uh, from Bruckner. But what's the next thing Ben has done? Well, it hasn't been published yet, but he's, he went back and over, overhauled Novak's edition of the uh, first version of the, of the uh, Fourth Symphony. He fell madly in love with that. Of course, I've always been in love with it. But anyway, he, uh, and he did that. Out of Ben, you can expect nothing but honesty. Nothing but honesty. But Hurwitz reads Ben's work, and then he condemns it because he doesn't understand it. And if he doesn't understand something, his answer to it is not to have any respect for it. And that's all I'm going to say about David Hurwitz. Well, yeah, I'm glad we got to air out a little bit of our, <laughs> our concerns about David Hurwitz. And, uh, you know, just being a young, impressionable man, you know, going on the Internet and seeing a, a, a critic who's very knowledgeable um, you know, say, you know, speak about different recordings and, you know, different composers at length. Um, I, 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 I realized early on that most of what he says about Bruckner is very underhanded, um, where he may like give faint <laughs> praise, but you can tell deep down that he's not a Bruckner guy at all. So I, I, I feel like Bruckner is in better hands with yourself and Sebastian rather than David Hurwitz. Um, that's my honest opinion. Um, and just being a young, impressionable man who happens to love very profound music, I'm naturally drawn to Bruckner, especially more than Mahler, which we discussed on the last episode. But um, I, I, I feel very fortunate. The, the, main, the main claim of David Hurwitz is about uh, the last will of Bruckner, what he bequeathed to the Austrian Imperial Library. He, he left his manuscripts of the symphonies. And uh, Hervit says, these manuscripts are the last will of Bruckner. And all the rest, the, the, the first publication with the, 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 the orchestration, with the, it was changed with the help of uh, the pupil of Bruckner, that's 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 bullshit. We don't have to listen to this. That's interesting, but we don't have to perform it. And we have so many versions: the the first version of the third, the second, the third version of the third. It's same about the the second. It's too complicated for for people. It's a, it's a, it's a, I don't know how you say that a mishmash. I don't know the expression exactly, but it's too complicated and. The fact is that the Bruckner case is complicated. And as, as I already explained it uh, in the previous podcast, Bruckner had very few opportunities to experience and to hear his own music. He was the, a pioneer. He was the first person to, to compose so, such large scale. So he needed to revise, to adapt, and for, for different reasons, also the stupidity of the audience, of course, and, and, and the people around around him who sometimes were probably well-intentioned. But, you know, maybe sometimes you, you can be well-intentioned in, for somebody and the result is, is it's not good. So the, the Bruckner, the Bruckner uh, case is very complicated and Hervitz doesn't want to dig into this complexity. 
th that's the main problem. Yeah. And we cannot reject, for example, the first publication of the, the symphonies, especially the seventh and the fourth. These publications were supervised by Bruckner himself. He, he, he was uh, there during the rehearsal with Nikisch, with Hans Richter, the, the conductors. So he, he marked, he left metronome markings. We have a lot of tempo changes. So it's a very important source information on how to play, how to perform his music. And there we, we know, we, we learn that Bruckner didn't want slow tempi, he didn't uh, expect his music to, to be performed steadily uh, without uh, flexibility. No, he wanted that. And even I, I, a few years ago, I, I, um, I took part to uh, the writing of a text uh, of 10, 10 pages with my friend uh, Nicolas Couton, the, the conductor who, who performed my, the, the Ninth Symphony with my finale in Budapest. And we, yeah. we, we wrote an article. I, you can have, share it, uh, the, the link in the description of the, of the video. And it's about it's about uh, how to perform Bruckner and, and more largely how, how, how um, romantic symphonic music was performed at that time. And we have a very important uh, source of uh, uh, of information that's the, the uh, conductor treaty uh, of, of Wagner himself, when where he gives examples of. Karl, Karl Mayer von Weber or Beethoven's uh, piece of music. And when, when he writes, there I, I, I play faster, then I, I slow down. And, and that's, that's, that was, that was the, that was huge. Um, um, that was, um, an, um, um, how to say that? Um, that was a common practice at that time to change the tempo in, 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 and we have also, you can read this article, we have also testimonies of uh, uh, Arnold Schoenberg when he moved to America, to Hollywood, and when he listened to a, a symphony of Brahms performed by an American uh, orchestra and, and uh, he, he, he wrote, but I, I don't, I don't hear what I, experience when I was in Berlin or in Vienna. These people know nothing about this flexibility, constant flexibility uh, in tempo. And uh, these people are ignorant that this, this, tradi this tradition is, is lost here in America. Yeah, also, uh, I have um, yeah, heard uh, some Bruckner symphonies performed here in Texas. And uh, I even saw a uh, in Sweden performing uh, the eighth and he's like a world renowned conductor, but he really sped up the, the last movement um, of the eighth um, to such an extent. Yes. I don't know if he was short on time or what, but it lost a lot of gravitas being played so fast. And, you know, going up to the uh, Coda finale, um, it really has to be handled with a lot of care. It can't be rushed through um for the full expression to manifest uh go ahead will yeah i'll join with that exactly um there was a performance last fall by uh, a semi-pro orchestra in, Bo in boston called the boston philharmonic led by the conductor the very experienced conductor an old bruckner hand benjamin zander well ben is an old friend of mine a quite a good friend and uh 
he and I had been talking about this since August. And I influenced him into using exactly the tempos that were you that are indicated in the score of the finale of the uh, of the Eighth Symphony, and uh, to pro- propagate those tempos all the way through the whole movement. What do they mean in terms of the of the other nuances that are present there in the in the first published edition? And uh, to make a long story short. That uh, Ben did everything according to that edition, particularly the nuances, the very striking nuances around the uh, recapitulation of the main theme in the finale and that letter FF. The, the uh, amazing things that 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 this edition has you doing. Uh, of course, they were all omitted by by Schalk, uh, not by Schalk, heaven's sakes, by by Haas. They were all omitted by Haas. And they were not put back in by Novak, or maybe a few of them were, but those nuances were not there. Uh, Sebastian pointed out to me that um, Bryden Thompson takes the same tempos. He does, but he doesn't do those nuances. He does them because he sees the now he sees the metronome markings in his score where they've always been in every score that's ever been published of that symphony by anybody under any editorship. The metronome markings have always been there, and they're just about always ignored. They're outrageous. But uh, particularly the business about the, the ending of the second theme group and the recapitulation of the third theme group is very slow. It's, it's written much more slowly, feel like summer. And then uh, the, uh, there's this big accelerando and a quotation of the main theme of the first movement. The accelerando stops at the quotation. And the quotation is slow, but there, there's a channel on it beyond it. And then the, the fast tempo is resumed and then dies away. And finally, we get the coda itself. And I told Ben, do not speed up in the coda. Don't speed up. People have been listening to this piece for an hour and a half, and they deserve to hear all the detail. And Ben kept this tempo as firm as the stars in their courses. It sounded so good. It really sounded good. If you can hear this, you should. You can you can get it from abrookner.com. They'll give you a copy of it. It's it, the orchestra is a semi-pro orchestra, and it sounds like it. But they have a very good attitude in that group, and this is a history-making performance, I think. Excellent, Sebastian. Any thoughts on that? Yes, just a remark uh, about this performance. That that's a very very uh, very good performance. Um, but uh, the tempo of the funeral march is too fast, unfortunately, in, in this performance. He, he changes the tempo and he's faster. So we don't have this, this, uh, this effect of, uh, you know, there is syncopations in, in the, in the buildup yeah. of this <laughs> funeral march. And we, when you play too fast, the syncopations are, are vanished, it disappears. So it's very important to have this, this suffocating effect of the syncopes. Uh, and and uh, one, one conductor that does it very well is Arnoncou with Berlin Philharmonic. It's very slow and he would. you can hear all the syncopes of the, 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 the viola parts and the, the cello parts. It, it's, it's very moving. Uh, I, I, th- I, think, I think you're right. The place that uh, Sebastian is talking about is the beginning of the third theme group in the recapitulation. There's beam, bomb, 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 bomb. And there are syncopations there, and you don't hear them unless they're pretty, pretty slowly. You're quite right. 
And maybe we should have done it slower in Boston. Probably should have. Uh, and of course, what that does is it gives you more room for the acceleration, which is going to happen later. Maybe exactly. Ben started the acceleration. Uh, he could have been. Well, these things you work out after a while. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, I think that is very significant. And it's really pretty important since Fiedel Langsamer. This is with respect to the tempo of the B theme, which is already at 60. The A theme is at 69. This means you get down to 52, 50, and you take it very slow. Yes, B, B2 is slower. Yeah. Just you need to do it for a while. And the hesitation and the, the total fear almost that's, that's in that music won't be heard unless you play it slowly. When you play so slowly, your music becomes like... Uh, You know, like the Christ bearing his cross to Golgotha. Yes, yes. Golgotha. That, that's that's the, 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 this kind. That's a funeral march, but that that's a, a, a march to the, the the passion of the passion of, of the of Christ. Maybe it's that's purely subjective. I, I must say, but I have these images coming to my mind when I listen to this music. It rings true to me. No, the funeral march. I agree. Yeah, the funeral march should be performed slowly in the tradition of Beethoven. Um, so, yeah, 100% agree with that. And, you know, I thought it was a solid performance. I did watch it a couple of nights ago. It was Anders' performance. Um, and uh, I, I, for a semi-pro orchestra, they did a very good job. I'll have to say that. And I, I immensely enjoyed it. And I immensely enjoyed the, uh, the 40-minute introduction to the symphony which was uh, yeah. going through the themes and explaining Bruckner to the general audience that may not understand Bruckner and those very phenomenal introduction. So I do want to wrap up this episode today with a, a light note of what just Bruckner, Bruckner means to us on a personal level. Um, as I stated in the, the other podcast, I was first illuminated by Beethoven. And I was secondly illuminated by Bruckner. It's very esoteric. It's very, like, I look for music. You know, I love a, a great deal of classical music. And the, the two main hitters for me are Beethoven and Bruckner. And I feel like, you know, even though the, you know, both are very similar in a lot of regards, but uh, Bruckner, um, he just went above and beyond in some regards with, you know, the massive symphonies and very profound music. And it, like Sebastian mentioned on the other episode where he delves into pure abstraction, you know, he talks about polyphony and things of that nature. And, um, and I, I totally feel that I feel when I hear Bruckner, it, it transports me beyond the mundane world. It takes me beyond the world as I see in front of myself. Um, But this is not the kind of, of abstraction that you can find, for example, with the music of Pierre Boulez. That's not uh, pure abstraction is this, in this kind of music, I would say. Uh, when I, I, I talk about abstraction, when you look at a, a Gothic cathedral, for example, Notre Dame in Paris or Chartres and so on, that's uh, architecture is geometry. And it's abstraction. You, you can give uh, 
specific words to explain why is it so beautiful, but it makes sense. When you look at a, at a, uh, at a Gothic cathedral, it, you are illuminated, you are elevated, you're, you're, it's meaningful, but you, you can't say why is it so beautiful. That's the, the kind of abstraction I was thinking about. Right, yes, um, and that goes into actual philosophy where we, like, especially of Hindu philosophy, where, <clears throat> like in Advaita, um, where there is the ultimate reality, which is Brahman, um, it's a non-dualist philosophy, and um, when you try to reference Brahman, a higher reality, you can only do it through metaphor, really, um, because once you actually prescribe um, mundane aspects, you completely castrate what that higher reality is. So expressing your thoughts through words that correlate to, for instance, uh, you know, depictions of the mundane world or, you know, things that people can reference that they see in their day-to-day -day lives, that completely cuts off, quote-unquote, you know, higher reality or something like that. Um, and uh, Advaita, as well as in uh some uh, transcendental idealism as a spouse and, uh, you know, the German school of philosophy. But uh, I, when I listen to Bruckner, I, I definitely feel there's something more beyond comprehension that, you know, he was just one man, one man who was super illuminated um, when he wrote his music. And with that, he, he came to closest, the closer than Beethoven or any other composer, in my opinion, to reaching a higher state. Um, it may not be something I can tangibly say um, without you know, doing an injustice, but um, it, it's just very profound music. And uh, you know, number one, I'm, I'm fortunate that I discovered Beethoven and truly, at least in my own opinion, grasped the music. And then number two, uh, the Bruckner. Um, so, uh, Will, what does uh, Bruckner mean to you on a personal level? Uh-huh. I've been wanting to tell this story in the last 10 minutes. There is, uh, as, as you probably have heard, that Bruckner would get rather personal with his students. His students were musicologists, by the way. He taught, he taught composition to musicologists. And the two, the two pupils that he had that were really... Uh, famous were uh, Guido Adler, who was for many years the uh, chief editor of the Denkmüller der Tonkunstenösterreich, which was an old music publication, and uh, Heinrich Schenker, whom we all know about. And um, uh, one time Bruckner said to them, you know, when I go to heaven, he said, because he was sure he was going to go to heaven, there was no doubt about that. When I go to heaven, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to seek out the master of all masters, Beethoven. And I'm going to fall at his feet and say to him, Master, I learned everything I know from you. Then I will get up and say, I hope you don't mind that I went a bit beyond you. Now, I, I, I think I need that in German, but, but uh, that, that was his attitude. And of course, anybody who looks at any of the Bruckner symphonies, starting with the second, and perhaps starting with the F minor, knows that he, of course he went beyond Beethoven, at least in terms of style and in the big symphonies, except for the ninth, the Beethoven ninth, he went beyond them in size. Um, he went beyond them in chromaticism. 
eventually went beyond them in size of orchestra and techniques and things like that. But Beethoven still stands as a radical source and critic of what music's all about. And Berkner knew that. And Berkner, that's where he got his influence. But it, it uh, uh, I think, Jason, it means a lot to me that those are your two musical gods. Well, yes, absolutely. What are your personal thoughts? <laughs> Like, and like, I just laid out my soul in regard to Bruckner. Um, <laughs> what, what my you- personal thoughts is I have a lot to discover. I have a lot to discover. I mean, I, I know I say a lot in the red, in the red book, the new book that I'm working on now, it, that will have opinions, not about which version is better, but it will have opinions about maybe what symphonies mean, things like that, what they mean to me, what they meant to others. Uh, because the, the basic temp- topic is, Berkner's compositional methods and how did he approach the whole idea of composing and what did he do here and there and elsewhere. At this point, uh, I have a basic plan for the book, but aside from that plan, I have nearly 7,000 words of suggestions that I've written to myself about what has to go into it. Um, I expect it might be done in a year and a half. I, I hope I have the time. I'm 84 now. I hope I have the time to complete it. But if I do, it's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun. It's a great honor to have you on the podcast, by the way. It's great to actually talk with you a little bit. And uh, Sebastian, what does Bruckner mean to you on a general personal level compared to other composers? It's a very difficult question to answer uh, because it's so so deeply rooted in my being, this music, this composer. He is the, the guy who is every day with me. So mm-hmm. uh, that's probably the most um, meaningful music that I that I know. Most probably, uh, that's the most complex, uh, the, the richest music I know. Uh, you know, for example, the, during the presentation of the, the Eighth Symphony, Benjamin Sander uh, spoke about the, the adagio of the Eighth Symphony, and he said it, it, it's about uh, about love. Uh, but what kind of love uh, in this music? Is it platonic? Is it spiritual? Is it human? Maybe it's it's uh, all these kind of loves all together uh, united. Um, it's it's very difficult to to explain uh, because uh, this music, uh, as every music, but especially this music, is beyond words. So uh, I'm sorry if, if I if I'm not uh, too talkative uh, about about that <laughs> question, but but it's it's a, it's a, it's a music that helped me to live uh, every day to have uh, meaning in my life. That's simple uh, as that. It's it's a music uh, that brings um, a lot of joy, a lot of of, of strength, of, of intellectual stimulation. Uh, uh, yes, Anton Bruckner is with me every day, every day. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Um, and it is wonderful. It, it really speaks volumes of. Not only are you an expert, it's very intimate for you on a personal level. And I I do believe, you know, both of you are great uh, 
representatives for Bruckner. And I want to thank you both. It's a great honor to have you both on this podcast, just to kind of talk about Bruckner, different thoughts, and as well as uh, delving into the Red Book a little bit. Um, I, I want to thank you both from the bottom of my heart. It's been an honor to speak to both of you. Yeah, and, and the Red Book is a must buy. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. This has been a really good conversation. Yep. Thank you very much. Yep. I'll leave links in the description where you can find everything you need to know about these two. And of course, you know, there will be a link for the Red Book, which, and my point of view is the ultimate reference for Bruckner in the different versions of the symphonies for you to, you know, kind of delve into it yourself. It's a very objective book. And you're able to see, you know, plainly with QR codes and hear the differences if you don't want to read the scores of the different versions of the symphonies um, and see exactly why um, things are the way they are um, in the symphonies and, you know, really parse, you know, the differences between them. Um, so I, I do want to thank you, Sebastian. Um, Phenomenal guy, and I really appreciate your friendship. So thank you for coming back on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for and, the invitation. Uh, Will Kerrigan, um, complete freaking honor to have you on today. Um, very, uh, uh, I, I feel very intimidated just from the sheer amount of knowledge that you have in your skull compared to mine. Is Mine is very minuscule. Yours is like a mountain. So um, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's an honor to, to be here with you. And it's really an honor for me to be here with with uh, Sebastian, who I had the greatest respect for. And uh, uh, he, if you ever get a chance, if you can, you should hear some of the music that he has written. He's a really good composer. He's very convincing. And the reason I have is because he sent it to me. But uh, <laughs> it's an honor thank to be associated with him. Yeah, um, very... Uh... Yeah, both of you are very uh, the highest echelon of people who I respect. So thank you very much. And I'll be uh, playing some music in this episode. And uh, hopefully you enjoy what you hear in addition to the conversation.